Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. So, Genesis chapter 12, okay, and... Let me just read this passage. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so shall you be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot was with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah, Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So uh, we're all pretty familiar with this story. The background is Abram, uh, we know when you get into some of the details of of the text of where he was living, uh, he he was in Ur of the Chaldees for a time. Uh, He was very blessed. He was probably upper middle class. I mean, for an ancient city, he had it about as good as you can get. And God said, just trust me, leave, go somewhere. Well, where am I going? Uh, Just trust me, just start journeying. And he had faith. He left. I mean, Abram is presented to us as a man of great faith. He's presented to us as, in some sense, the father of faith. And we see why, because what he does here. But what we're going to look at today is, and I'm sure we all probably have personal testimonies in our life, but this is kind of a classic one, of when God makes promises and then the promises seem to be delayed in getting answered. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Something you're praying about, something you're hoping for, and it seems like it just keeps getting stretched out. Let me say this. Um, I think a lot of us, and I include myself in this, what we really want in life is we want a sitcom God. And here's what I mean by that. You know, think of your favorite sitcom. Whether it's a drama or a comedy or whatever, at some level, there's, all, there's always going to be some little problem in the sitcom, right? And unless it's a to-be-continued episode, within 26 minutes or so, maybe 24 minutes, once you take out all the commercials, the problem is going to arisen and the problem will have been solved. And so the way that we live, if, I think if we get gut level honest, it's like, God, if you give me a problem on Friday, that's fine. You're sovereign. I'm not. I'm willing to trust you. I'm willing to suffer. I'll spend all day Saturday wrestling in my faith. But by Sunday morning, I'd like to have the problem solved, Lord. And that's not always the way it works. There's a lot of long-term suffering in the Christian life. And so uh, really here's what we want to think about today. When you're dealing with hardship... When you're dealing with negative emotions, how do you process them rightly before the Lord? How do you live the life of faith when all of your circumstances that you can see, touch, taste, and feel with your five senses seem to be screaming at you, don't trust God. He's not trustworthy. He's not coming through for you. Where is he? So first, we want to look at Abram because he starts well. He starts faithful in fear. Okay? 
He's tempted to fear, but he's doing his best to trust the Lord, to be faithful. So flip over to Genesis chapter 15. And this would have been many years later. God's made him this promise. And part of the problem, uh, promise was you're going to have descendants because your descendants are going to inherit this land. But at this point, remember, his wife is barren. They have no descendants. So let's pick up Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, a servant of his. And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir. But one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Now look toward the heavens and count the scars, stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. If you underline your Bible, underline that verse. I mean, that, that's a key text in the Old Testament. Kind of a side note Bible trivia. How did people get saved in the Old Testament? In some sense, they got saved the exact same way that we do. They got saved by trusting in the Messiah. Now, here's the difference. We look back to a risen Messiah, and we understand a lot more than they did. They looked forward to a shadowy promise of a Messiah that they pretty much didn't understand. And yet they said, I trust Yahweh to be good to His covenant promises. And they were saved by faith alone, just like we are. It wasn't by works. It wasn't by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. And Abraham was saved that way. Okay? So, think about it in your life. Because this is many years later. He has no child. And probably he's been through some hard things. He had to go rescue Lot from some other kings. And so he, there may be some temptation to fear that some of these kings are going to come back and attack him. He's struggling with some fear. Think about fear in your own life. And I'm not talking about the worshipful fear of the Lord. I'm talking about the normal, everyday, sinful fear that we are very accustomed to. We tend to fear two different things. One, it's either bad things that have happened to us already or bad things that we think might happen tomorrow. And maybe they will, maybe they won't, but we're fearful. It will be painful if such and such happens to me. The other thing is there's good things that we want that we think are going to be denied to us or maybe the good things that we have that are going to be taken away. Those tend to be the two types of categories I think that our fear runs in. And it seems like Abram was probably dealing with some degree of both. There's some fear. You promised me a kid. God, and I ain't got a kid yet. It's been a long time. And my wife, I love her, but her biological clock has long... It's not ticking anymore. It stopped. And my body is so old, it's as good as dead. I don't know how this is going to happen. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I probably read this prayer in Genesis 15 that just we went over, Abram to God, it can almost seem a little disrespectful. Hey, what have you given me? What are you going to give me? But here's one thing that I think is helpful for all of us to remember. When you are wrestling, wrestling with in, uh, negative emotions, the worst thing you can do is just to stuff them. Nothing to see here. All is fine. I'm a great person of faith. Where internally you're just, ah, I don't get it. I'm sad. I'm scared. That's bad. And listen, in my experience, for most middle class Westerners, that is our strategy. When I'm wrestling with fear, sadness, some kind of pain, some kind of heart, some kind of negative emotion. And let me say this. All negative emotions are not sinful, right? There, there is a right, appropriate way to deal with negative emotions. 
And the best way to deal with them is to vent them to the Lord, to be very honest in the place of prayer. Here's what I'm wrestling with. I, I trust you. I kind of trust you. I want to trust you. I love the story in Mark chapter 9 where the man with the demon and his son comes to the nine disciples. Can you heal my son? And they can't. And then Jesus comes down the mountain and said, Hey, your disciples couldn't. Can you? And Jesus is almost indignant. He's like, all things are possible to those who believe. And you remember the man's prayer to the Lord Jesus? I do believe. Help my unbelief. Don't you love that honesty? He's like, you know what? I got somewhere between 1% and 99% faith. And then I got somewhere between 1% and 99% doubt. And don't nail me down on exactly where it lands because it'd probably be ugly. I'm just begging mercy. And Jesus said, you got to have perfect... No, He didn't say that. He healed the man's son because He's a merciful, kind Savior. So when we're going through hardship, negative emotions, the way to be faithful in the midst of the temptation to fear is just to pour out your heart to God. You, you fix your fear by praying your fear. Talk. That doesn't mean you can't talk to somebody else about it. Oftentimes that is very helpful. Make sure you talk to wise, godly people who will listen well but will also speak the truth in love to you and not push you further into the fear. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so God speaks. God answers him and says, listen, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you every single thing you want. So, again... So much of a good prayer life is rolling burdens, metaphorically, off of your back, off of your soul, and putting them onto the Lord Jesus. Leaving them there in His lap. You handle this. I don't want to handle this. I can't handle this. So, second point. How do you fight fear? Okay. Um, Let's skip down to chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now, um, it's been ten more years since God spoke again and promised, Trust me. But Sarai, her faith is done. Okay, She's like, I waited a decade. Really, it's probably been 25 years about this. You know, it's, it's, been, it's been enough of waiting. I'm done. And she sinfully takes matters into her own hands. Now, the point of this whole lesson is not to be passive. That There are right ways for human beings to use the brain, to use the bodies, to use the energy we have to do things. Let me give you an example. Imagine that one of my sons came to me and said, Hey, Dad, I need some money. And I said, Well, you know, there's a Chick-fil-A down the road. I hear they're hiring why don't you go down there and get some money? And if a couple hours later he comes back and he's got a mask on and a gun in one hand and a wad of cash and he's breathing really heavy, I said, what happened, buddy? He said, well, you said go to that Chick-fil-A and got some money. I did. I went and robbed the place. Obviously, this is a stupid example, but you understand the point. There is a legitimate way that he could have called and gotten a job, fixed his own need and gotten some money that would have been approved of by the Lord. There's obviously a lot of sinful ways. 
Okay, so here's how you know that you're really starting to sin with your negative emotions is when it's pushing you into obvious sinful things. Listen, I'm sure we've all heard this story before and we've probably heard some of the cultural context. You know, this kind of thing was acceptable if a woman was barren and she was wealthy and she had a servant. She could have... Listen, guys, it doesn't matter if it was culturally accepted for at least two reasons. Number one, it wasn't accepted by Genesis 2, right? One man, one woman, one union. That's the way it's supposed to work. And then even take away that. Let's just say maybe they were ignorant of that at some level. You don't have to be like a child psychologist or a family counselor to realize this is a stupid plan. This is going to backfire. I mean, just think about it. This elderly couple, we want kids, we can't have kids, but you know, we have this young maid, she looks pretty healthy. So husband, you start sleeping with her as long as it takes until we know she's pregnant. Then you come back to my tent, we'll wait the nine months till the baby's born, and then I'll just take the baby for myself and we'll all be one big happy family. I mean, this is just like a bad episode of Jerry Springer or something. It is a guaranteed, unmitigated disaster waiting to happen. But when we get really desperate and fearful, we will do stupid stuff, will we not? And Abram, he's just passive, okay. And then it does backfire because the maid starts to probably think, maybe I'm going to become wife number one because I can provide children. So she kind of starts to despise Sarai. Sarah doesn't like it, gets mad, goes to Abram. I and mean, this sounds like some fights that I've at least hypothetically heard about. You know, it was Sarah's plan. Abram was passive. Then she comes and she's like, this is your fault. And he's like, no, 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 no. It's not my fault. Do whatever you want. I don't want anything to do with this. It's a terrible situation. Listen, Derek Kidner, this great Old Testament commentator. False pride. False blame. False neutrality. But Sarai's mask soon slipped to show the hatred behind the talk of justice. In some sense, this is what we're after, guys. When you are embarrassed, when you are frustrated, when you are worried, any kind of negative emotion, how do you try to cover it up? How do you try to hide yourself from the pain, really, of your own sinful choices? My own sinful choices have gotten me here. I don't want to just admit I'm a sinner and I did something really bad and stupid. So what's the mask that you put on to hide behind? Does that make sense? I mean, you, did you hear a language there? I think it's in verse 6. Uh, excuse me, the end of verse 5. May the Lord judge between you and me. What a self-righteous comment. This is really your fault, husband. And God will vindicate me. No, he won't. But, but listen, we are masters. We get into a conflict with somebody. Now listen, did Sarah have sin in this conflict? Was she, was she somewhat sinful, sinfully responsible? Absolutely. Was Abram somewhat They were both sinful. But listen, here's another thing we like to be experts in. You get into a conflict, hypothetically with your spouse... Really quickly, we want to go to, I know I'm not perfect, I'm not Jesus, I probably have 1% of the sin, but you've got 99%. Here's the thing, guys. That may technically be true. Let's just say for once in your life you had a perfectly objective you know, review of the fight you just had with your spouse, and you really were so much more the innocent party, they were so much more the guilty party. What would the Lord Jesus still say to you? 
Get the log out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye. You got to take the sin in your own life more seriously. You start there, and they're not doing that. You fix your fear by praying your fear, but pity parties prevent prayer. When you're just having a pity party for yourself, you're probably not going to have a very strong prayer life. You're not going to have a very effective prayer life. She doesn't pray. There's no evidence that she prays. Okay. Um, now, the next time you're struggling with some negative emotion and you don't know exactly what to do, how to handle it, and you're kind of considering different options, ask yourself this question. And probably ask this question to yourself, maybe not out loud. Am I sleeping with the maid? And here's what I mean. Obviously, I don't mean that literally. But am I coming up with a strategy that if I could step back objectively, I'd be like, this is a stupid strategy. What am I doing? This is a little bit like Sarah saying, please sleep with my maid. Evaluate yourself. Am I making a stupid decision? And catch yourself, hopefully, before you fall into it. Now, sometimes when we're dealing with fear, we try to fight. We try to, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to claw my way out of this. That's what Sarah did. It didn't work. But then sometimes we just want to run away. We just flee, right? So you can fight or you can flee. Let's look at what Hagar the maid does. Uh, Let's start in the middle of verse 6. So Sarai treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, just notice that. God says, hey, in my mind, you still belong back being the maid. That's your job. Where have you come from, and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. Now, we've all heard of the fight or flight syndrome. I mean, that's basically what I'm saying is when sinful emotions come, you can run, you can fight and try to fix it, or there's a faithful way to stay in the middle. Okay, and we see Sarah running away. I mean, excuse me, we see Hagar running away. We see Sarah trying to fix it in her own power. Let me give a personal example. Okay. Um, I mean, many, many moons ago, uh, I, with Campus Outreach, I was up in Florence, Alabama, a little small town about two hours from here, and my main job was mostly ministering to students on the campus and then leading a handful of staff, kind of young, brand-new staff on a couple of campuses. So my life consisted, for the most part, of walking around uh, in flip-flops and shorts and a t-shirt and going into fraternity houses and, and teaching Bible studies and sometimes having staff meetings and coffee shops. And I guess I was somewhat good at it because I got a promotion to come down here and be the director of campus outreach. And it's a little bit different role. All of a sudden, you're dealing with massive budgets and you're having to go to different board meetings and elders meetings and meet with big donors. And there's, there's, you, you still lead some staff, but there's a lot more kind of executive type things that go along with it. And I was way out of my depth. And within about the first year, I don't remember exactly, one of the gentlemen on our board who I liked and respected and trusted, uh, he took me to lunch. And I don't remember all the conversation, but here was the bottom line. It's like, hey, Olin, uh, when you were more of a campus staff guy, uh, you, you did a great job. That's, that's why we put you in this job. Uh, but let's just be honest. You're not doing such a great job now. And the board is really wrestling with, have we made it a, a mistake or not? Now, I'm sure he said something else after that to kind of soften the blow. I just don't remember anything else. And I remember leaving that lunch. I, mean, I can remember where we had lunch and going and getting in my car and driving away and processing it. And, and here's kind of the way my thought process worked. At first, I was like, I'm really glad he's being honest with me. I, you know, 
I'd rather somebody stab me in the face than in the back, right? So he's, he's saying some hard truth to me, but at least he's just, he's being honest. He was kind. He, but then he was, I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? And the two options that presented themselves to my mind almost immediately were fight or flight. The fight would have been to show up at the next board meeting and be like, you bunch of old guys don't know how to run a college ministry. I know what I'm doing. You don't know what you're doing. Let me do it my way. Stay out of my way. Now, you don't have to be a genius to realize that would not have worked very well. That had been a lot of pride and arrogance that really, what, would have been covering some of my insecurity, right? That would have been my mask. Look how confident I am. And it almost certainly would have led to me getting fired. The other option would be to kind of kowtow and just be scared and maybe run away or maybe just be so terrorized that I was kind of like this suck up all the time, you know, trying to just figure out every little whim that they had. And I don't think that would have worked either. That would have led to failure. So as I'm driving, it's like this thought came to my mind. It's like, okay, God, I'm going to do my best with the gifts you've given me. I'm going to really try to uh, listen to all the feedback they're giving me where I need to improve and do my best to, to be as good as I can be in those areas where they're saying I'm weak right now. But then here was still where I really wrestled. But God, I, you know, I, we were having very regular board meetings back then uh, because things were not going so well. It's like, I got to go have a meeting with these guys like every week or every month. How am I supposed to present myself? And here's where I landed. I'm just going to pray every day probably, but certainly every time before we have a meeting, God, you give me the favor in these men's eyes you want me to have. And I can still remember where I was driving down 280, thinking about all this. And literally, guys, I'd been worried, and this sense of peace just came over me. And, here, and here's the thought that came with it. It may seem strange. It's like, if I do my best to be humble, to work hard, to try to listen, to try to grow, to not get defensive and defend myself, and just pray. And at the end of another year, they come to me and just say, hey, Olin, we love you. You've tried hard. You're just not gifted for this job. And they find, I can, I can be, I'll happily walk away from the job. Because in some sense, that will just mean, God, you and your providence are ordaining. This is not the best place for me. There must be some other place for me in your kingdom. And there was just freedom. Does that make sense? And within a year or so, things had really turned around. So I could give you plenty of examples and just stick in the class long enough, and you're going to get here plenty of examples of how I have done it wrong in my life, Okay. But like every once in a while, a blind hog finds an acorn, okay? And, and here was a good example of, I was tempted to fight because that's more my personality. But I was a little bit tempted to run away because that would have just been easier. But the Lord kind of guided me to, what does it look like to just live faithfully? And guys, here's part of what I'm trying to help us understand. Part of what it means to live faithfully in this fallen, broken world with our indwelling sin is to live in the tension. Right? Part of me in that moment wanted to know, but God, is this for sure where I'm supposed to be? Can I get an audible voice like Abram had? I didn't get any audible voice. Any of y'all been getting that lately? I had to live by faith in just put one foot in front of the other and trust God to guide you, to give you enough grace to make it into the next day. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's like a little foot lantern that you can walk through some mountain pass. It's not a GPS that shows you the whole way that you can drive from here to Pennsylvania wherever you're going. That's what we want. That's not what he gives us. He says, I'll show you the next step, maybe the next two steps. If you want to know steps three and four, you know what you got to do? 
Take step one, take step two. Live in faith. Yeah. Uh, Psalm 16, verse 8. There's a place where David says, I have set the Lord always before me. What's he talking about? Metaphorically, he was setting the eyes of his heart on the Lord. Meditating on God is real. God is good. God is with me. I may not be able to see him. I may not be able to feel him or hear him, but I can trust him. That's what we've got to do. So, look back, 16, verse 9. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. The answer in so many of these things is, Return and submit. Repent. So, where in your life are you struggling with fear, worry, pain, hurt right now? Any kind of negative emotions. And just know thyself. Are you more tempted to fight or to flight? Because all of us have a tendency based on our personality or upbringing. And the more you know yourself, the more you can in a sense counsel yourself and push yourself back towards the middle of faithfulness. And, and, and remember this. If you're more of a fighter, the answer is not to become a flighter. Right? That's just another form of sin. If you're more of a runner or a wearer, the answer for you is not to stay and get arrogant and start fighting everything and trying to fix everything in your life. The answer for both of us is the middle path of faithfulness. Walking by faith, trusting the Lord. Okay? Don't fight, don't flee. Have faith, be faithful. Now, a lot of times, to figure this out, you've got to seek counsel. You've got to have other godly, wise people in your life. Again, we don't have God speaking audibly to us. Certainly not on a regular basis. Here's the main way God speaks to us. The Bible. Immerse your brain in the Bible. But here's the second main way that God speaks to us today. It's not through the inner whisper of the Spirit. I'm not saying God can't or doesn't do that. But I'm saying that's very subjective and dangerous. Second to the Bible, here's the main way God speaks to us. Through the counsel of godly people. If you have multiple mature godly people that know you and know the situation and they say, here's what we think you should do and they all agree, that's almost the voice of God for you. Does that make sense? Could they miss it? Yes, but that's more the rare exception. So, you want to live this way? Part of what you have to do is you have to be enough of an open book to invite these people in. If you're a closed book, always putting on your mask, putting your best foot forward, nobody really knows you. But if you're like, here's all my junk, here's all my fear and worry and sin and my path, they're like, okay, I'm starting to understand who you are. Then they can give you some really good godly advice. All right. One more verse from chapter 16. Skip down to verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive after seeing him? Now here's the idea. She did go back. How was she able to go back? Because she got a view of God, an experience of God, and His providence. You're a God that sees me. This is kind of a hard name of God to translate, but the idea is you see me and you see to it. You see the future. You see the hardship. You see the pain. You see the suffering. You see who I am. I feel validated. I feel cared about. And I know you're going to see to it. You're going to fix it. I can trust you. B.B. Warfield, the great old Princeton Presbyterian. This is, I, I heard Reverend Barker give this quote years ago, and it's, it's so helpful. I mean, this, 
it's almost, I'm going to read it, and at first you're like, that sounds too radical to be true. But just listen and then think about it. The solution of all life's problems, right? I mean, that just sounds like, oh, too good to be true. Can't. <laughs> the solution of all life's problems is strong confidence and providence. We can be satisfied in all that happens as necessary to his plan if we trust his end game without him fully explaining it to us. That makes sense? If I trust the character of God, that he's going to get me to the right place at the right time in the right way, then I don't have to be sitting here anxious and worried and angry and fearful about, tell me the exact steps. If I trust, by the time I get to letter Z of this life alphabet, I'm going to be in the right place at the right time. I heaven, sitting on a throne, living in a mansion with Jesus. I may feel like I'm somewhere in the messy middle, like in between LMNOP and I don't know where I am and which way is up and what's next and where am I going. But if I'm like, I'm guaranteed he's going to get me there somehow, some way, if I just keep trusting him. It's so freeing, it's so empowering. Now, flip over to the New Testament just for a second. Almost done. Because there's, there's, there's so many great examples of this in the Bible. But there's one greatest example. The Lord Jesus Christ, Mark chapter 14, verse 33. And just listen if you want to. You know this passage. Mark 14, verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Now just pause. We know that Jesus never sinned. Remember I said there is a legitimate way to have negative emotions. You can be distressed. You can be troubled. Your soul can be so deeply grieved that you feel like you're about to die. And you cannot be in sin. I mean... You want to call that despair? You want to call that depression? I don't know. But it's pretty bad. And yet he didn't slip into fear. How? Why? Because look at verse 35. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Guys, that's the greatest prayer, I think, in the universe. Build your whole prayer life after that. God, I'm going to be brutally honest with you about what I want. I'm not going to try to be a put-together Presbyterian. I'm going to tell you exactly what I want, even if I know it contradicts your will. That's what Jesus was doing. I know this is the plan, but I don't want to do it anymore. Any way out? That sounds sinful. Not sinful for Jesus. Why? Because he ended like this. But not my will, but thine. I'll do whatever you tell me to do, even if it kills me. even if it feels like hell on earth. Because it'll never really be hell on earth for us, right? Because it was already hell on earth for him. One last passage and we're done. Flip over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter kind of reflect. Remember, Peter was there. Peter heard that prayer right before he fell asleep again. And many years later, Here's Peter's reflection on that night. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Guys, Christ is our Savior. That is most important. He is also our model. And when you're going through terrible suffering, it is helpful to say, you know what, my big brother has been through suffering and his suffering was a lot worse than mine. And he leaves in the example of how to do it. Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth. One of the main ways we run away, guys, is we just tell little white lies. One of the main ways to be faithful, tell the truth. Verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. One of the main ways we fight, somebody comes after me verbally, I go right back after him, right? Not the Lord Jesus. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to his righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. There's the key at the end of verse 23. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He's literally before the Roman court of law. All the power, all the Jewish high priest, everybody's condemning him. But he basically said in his heart, I don't care what any of these people think about me. My Father in heaven, he's in charge. I care what he says, so I'll be faithful. Lord Jesus, you're such a good God. You're such a good Savior. You're such a good big brother and model. We love to worship you. There's something sweet about it. And Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for all of us, that more and more our worship would not just be coming to church on Sunday morning and singing uh, songs and carols, as important as that is. But it would be day in, day out, hour by hour, entrusting ourselves to you, praying to you, setting you and your providence before our mind's eye, so that in the hard times, in the tempting times, in the painful times, we can trust you and obey, no matter how hard it is. Thank you for taking the price of our sins that we might live free and clear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen, and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.